All right, good morning. Go ahead and grab your Bibles and make your way to Ezra 7. That's where we're going to be in our time together. Welcome to week six of our Ezra Nehemiah series. Last week, Pastor Micah covered a lot of ground in chapters five and six. I'm going to trip over that cord. And we left off with the temple being finished and the people of God celebrating that task that God gave them. We are now in chapter 7 of Ezra. And I don't know if you realize this, but we there's only 10 chapters in the book of Ezra. We are now starting chapter 7. So we're over 60% way of the way done with this book. Who have we not talked about yet? Ezra. Seems a little weird, right? But we're finally going to be introduced to Ezra. But it is odd to me that we are almost through this book and we have not talked about the title character. That'd be like going to see a Rambo movie in theaters and only seeing Rambo for the last 20 minutes. I mean, the last 20 minutes would be awesome, but you probably want your money back. Or if you're reading Jane Eyre, if you aren't familiar with that book, it's a classic, meaning it's old and boring. And if old Jane doesn't show up until the last 40 pages or so, that would be a problem. It probably wouldn't be a classic. I use Jane Eyre because it's one of my wife's favorite books. It's old, boring novel. <laughs> but there are a couple of things we have to understand when it comes to the book of Ezra. First off, the books of the Bible aren't about the title characters. Okay, The books of the Bible are about God. And how he is going to bring redemption to the world through his only son. And the book of Ezra is about God and how he used these prophets to bring about the next piece of the puzzle in the story of how man can be redeemed that shows his, uh, God's great glory. And all the Bible points to the gospel. It all points to Jesus. The book of Ezra points forward to the cross. And as we're going to see today, some men in the Bible with their hearts, their character, their actions, are going to point us to Jesus as a type of Christ almost. It's called typology. Not only uh, will who Ezra is point us to Jesus, but the event that is unfolding in the book of Ezra is also going to foreshadow what Christ is going to do. It's known as a typology. It refers to historical people, places, objects, events, which foreshadow Jesus and his work in the Old Testament. Because all of the Bible points to Jesus. All right, you need to understand that, all of it. But it also helps to understand that this book was originally combined with Nehemiah. It was called Ezra and Nehemiah. They were originally combined. It was one book. Years and years later, they were separated. All right, the first evidence of Ezra and Nehemiah being treated separately actually occurs in the patristic period. Right? When was that? doesn't really matter, but it's the end of the first century all the way to the eighth century. Does any of that matter? Absolutely not. I'm just trying to show you how I actually learned something in seminary. <laughs> Pastor Micah has already talked about all of this. It's a really good refresher, though. The book of Ezra is actually really interesting because it really is kind of two books. Chapters 1 through 6 are book 1, and it focuses on Zerubbabel. And then Ezra 7 through 10 is really book 2, which focuses on Ezra. Since Ezra Nehemiah is really about three prophets, not two. So you got Zerubbabel. Ezra, Nehemiah. And Pastor Micah talked about Zerubbabel the last several weeks, if you've been here. And he was tasked by God to take a group of people back and rebuild the second temple. Ezra is going to be tasked by God 
to go and teach Torah and rebuild the community. Nehemiah is going to be tasked by God to go repair the walls of Jerusalem. And each of these three prophets, each of their events are parallel in design. So they all have this kind of same format. A Persian king is going to be moved by God to send a leader to Jerusalem. They're going to face opposition. And then it's going to end in kind of a strange, anticlimactic way. Okay, As you recall, because y'all were paying great attention, King Cyrus sent Zerubbabel to return to Jerusalem. He faces opposition getting the temple ready. Uh, Israelites who, went into ex- uh, who never went into exile show up and want to help rebuild the temple. And Zerubbabel is like, you'll have no part in this. And refuses to let them rebuild the temple, which shows that the Israelites still have a long way to go before they really get it, and they're never really going to get it. Um, Because the Bible says all tribes are supposed to be worshiping at the temple, and he just kicked out a bunch of them. That's a problem. But the temple gets built, and the elders who remember the first temple and its majesty and its glory are heartbroken when they see this new temple and they start crying. And that's the end of chapter 6. The end. Not exactly the feel-good, happy ending one would expect after the temple of God was rebuilt, right? But that's kind of the point. There was, There's still a greater hope to come. While this temple was nothing compared to the first one, there's going to come an even greater temple that is going to dwell among the people. Jesus is going to dwell among the people. The Bible uses the word dwell, which literally means tabernacle. And before the first temple was built, the Israelites had the tabernacle for the presence of God to dwell among the people. The presence of God was with the people in the tabernacle. And then the presence of God went in the first temple. But the second temple was there for the people of God. However, the presence of God is never going to enter the new temple until the word becomes flesh. And the temple was filled a very different way. It went from brick and mortar to flesh and bone. And that's why Ezra 6 ends in such an anticlimactic way. Now, I'm a visual learner. I don't know about you. But I love it when Pastor Micah puts up all the extra info and the quotes and the charts and all that fun stuff. Um, I'm a fan. So, Pastor Micah, if you're listening to this, keep doing that. So here's a timeline of how things take place because I made a chart. It's a timeline. He gave us a timeline. Uh, Pastor Micah gave us a timeline back in week one of all the history of Israel up into the exile. And in week four, he gave us the dates of when the three waves of exiles returned. This is a timeline of the events that have taken place or will take place all the way up until the very last prophet. I don't know if you realize this, but John the Baptist is the last prophet. Okay, Of all the lessons we can learn from a study of Ezra and Nehemiah, one of the most important is that God never does anything halfway. All right? And that's very good news for us. Um, you know, when times get tough, we can put our hope in him. And as we've seen the last five weeks, once his judgment of the exile was completed, God began moving his hand to restore his people to their land and to himself. And he didn't just stop when the temple was done. As we're going to see, he's going to continue until the holy city of Jerusalem is rebuilt. The return of Ezra is in Jerusalem of 458 B.C., and that is another crucial step in the fulfillment of God's plan. Fifty-eight years passed between chapter 6 and chapter 7, okay? Those years are silent in the book of Ezra, but they are not silent in the Bible. As you can see on the screen, the book of Esther takes place between chapter 6 and chapter 7 of Ezra. And the king who ruled in Persia before Artaxerxes 
was Xerxes, and he was the king who played a very prominent role in the story of Esther's heroism in rescuing the Jewish people from annihilation. The events of the book uh, concern Jewish exiles who actually chose to stay in Persia rather than return to Israel, which some Bible commentators um, actually believe was an act of disobedience against God. Whether that's true or not, what we do know is Ezra, as we're going to see today, has a very different spirit. This time, God, through King Artaxerxes, is going to take Ezra, um, is going to take Ezra and task him with rebuilding the community in Jerusalem. And Ezra's not going to stay in Babylon. He's going to go back to Jerusalem. And today, we're going to dive deep and look into the lineage, return, and character of Ezra and how it all points us to Christ. So let us read Ezra chapter 7, verses 6 through 10. If you're able, let us stand in reverence for the reading of God's word. The word of the Lord. This Ezra went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. And the king granted him all that he asked, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. And there went up also to Jerusalem in the seventh year of Artaxerxes the king, some of the people of Israel, and some of the priests and Levites, the singers and gatekeepers and the temple servants. And Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. For on the first day of the month, he began to go up from Babylonia. And on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem. For the, hand, for the good hand of his God was on him. For Ezra had set his heart to the study the law of the Lord, and to do it, and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, may we learn more about you today. Lord, we ask that your Holy Spirit convicts each and every one of us in ways that we need to be convicted and let your truths reveal more about you today. Let your will be done in and through this, Lord. That is all we ask. Your will be done. Amen. You may be seated. Everybody wants to change the world, right? Some of y'all may remember back in the late 1900s and the 80s, a bunch of rich singers got together and sang a song, We Are the World. And they did this to raise money for charity. Any of y'all remember that? Yeah. My youth are like, what? Right. It had some really famous singers from the 80s. These singers included like Lionel Richie and Stevie Wonder and Paul Simon and Kenny Rogers and Tina Turner and Billy Joel and Michael Jackson and Diana Ross, Willie Nelson, Bruce Springsteen, Kenny Loggins, Steve Perry, Daryl Hall, Huey Lewis, Cindy Lauper, Bob Dylan, and Ray Charles. That is the A-list of the 80s right there. And We Are the World was released March 7th of 1985 and went on to sell more than 20 million copies. They made more than $75 million, and it was all for a nonprofit organization called USA for Africa. And their goal was to help fight poverty on the continent of Africa. Great intentions didn't work. See, the 10 poorest countries in the world in 2023 are all in Africa except one. See, these singers wanted to change the world through song, but it didn't even move the needle. All right? And you probably have people in your mind who changed the world in one way or another, people like Ben Franklin or Martin Luther King or Henry Ford, Bill Gates, Sojourner Truth, George Washington, Abraham Lincoln. You've probably got other people in mind. But if you really want to change the world, Ezra 7 tells us how to do it. And what I love about Ezra and this chapter, it shows us how to do it. And it's real simple. I didn't make this strategy up. Like, I got it from the book. 
Okay, that's what I do. I, I read it and I just tell y'all what it says. All right, the most effective thing that you can do to change the world is to study the Bible, do what the Bible says, and teach the Bibles to others. That's it. Crazy, right? What the world doesn't need is another rock star or useless celebrity. We don't need more government. We don't need more useless, famous people. Kids nowadays are growing up and saying they want to be a social media influencer. Ugh. That's a real thing now. Instead of growing up to want to be a doctor or a lawyer or a police officer or a teacher, they're now saying they want to be a social media influencer. I assure you the world does not need more influencers. And the church does not need more motivational speakers. They don't need con artists, these cool guys in skinny jeans and man buns who are telling you false gospels, telling you that God wants health, wealth, and happiness for you and for you to have your best life now. What the world and the church need, more than anything, is people who know God and know God's word. And do you want to know God? It's a simple question. Do you want to know God? Because I got really, really good news for you. You can do that. The way that you can grow in your knowledge of God, study his word. And you want to make an impact on the world, do what the Bible says, and then teach it to others. Amen? All right, amen. I'm going to need some ameners today, so don't be shy, all right? You already called me dumb and an idiot, Brother Curtis, so I'm going to need you. All right. So, so the first ten verses of chapter 7 can be divided into really three parts. And we're going to jump in, and we're going to talk about these three parts, and we're going to see how it all points us to Jesus. And the first is the lineage of Ezra shows that God is faithful. Now, at verses 1 through 5, if you'll look at it with me, and it's on the screen. Now, after this, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, the son of Sierra, son of Azariah, son of Hilkiah, son of Shalom, son of Zadok, son of Ayatub, son of Amariah, son of Azariah, son of Marioth, son of Zeroth, son of Uzziah, son of Bukai, son of Abuasha, son of Phinehas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the high priest. Y'all don't even know if I said those names correctly. Because I don't even know if I said those words correctly. Pastor Micah always taught me to just say it with conviction and y'all will believe it. Okay? I promise you I pronounced them different in the first service. But anytime that scripture gives a genealogy, and that is a genealogy, we know it's important somehow, some way, some shape or form. But sometimes we just don't know what to do with it. Right? What is significant about the genealogy? I mean, other than having ancestors with amazing names that aren't at all hard to pronounce. Well, for one, he's a direct descendant of Aaron. And, of course, you all remember that Aaron is the brother of Moses and was the chief priest of Israel back in Exodus. And the only tribe was the tribe of Aaron that could be priests. Now, they have a man with direct lineage to Aaron. That's kind of a big deal. In a day when many of the priests had been disqualified because they could not trace their family lineage back to the tribe of Aaron. Remember Ezra 2, um, where they wouldn't let a bunch of men become priests because they couldn't trace their lineage. There was one man who's an exception to this rule. His heritage not only goes back to Aaron, who's, again, a pretty big deal, but it also goes through Zadok, also a man who was a pretty big deal that you're probably less familiar with. This is a guy who Solomon appointed to be the new high priest after the previous high priest had supported the rebellion of Adonijah. Okay? 
It gets better, though. We learned that in Ezekiel 44, that when the nation was turning its back to God and turning to false idols while Israel was doing that, the descendants of Zadok remained faithful to the Lord. That's pretty cool. Ezra comes from a line of ancestors who were faithful in their service to the Lord. This would have been a huge win in the eyes of the community. This would be like if Tim Tebow has a son and he went to go play quarterback at the University of Florida. Hope would be back in Gainesville once Timmy Jr. stepped on campus, right? The fans would actually believe that the team could be good again. I imagine Billy Napier would not be the coach still, but whoever the new coach is would have a great quarterback with a great ancestry, and they, the fans would start to believe that the evil empire in Athens would be defeated, right? That's essentially what is happening in Jerusalem again. They see Ezra as a sign of hope because they have a guy who has a great ancestry. And I must add that the people didn't think, like, just because of his ancestry, he had some type of superpower. They didn't believe that Aaron or Moses were, you know, had superpowers or anything special. But they knew that the hand of the God was on them and they were prophets. But they also knew that they were both sinners in need of a Savior. Because if you remember, Aaron, while Moses is up on Sinai, created a false idol with a golden calf. Oops. Moses gets angry with the people and disobeys God and strikes the rock to get water. That's a problem. Both are sinners who looked forward to the cross of Jesus. Ezra doesn't stand any closer to God than those not born from the lineage of Aaron. But it does show that God is faithful. And it should be a reminder to the people that God is faithful. Thank you. Through Ezra, God is showing that he has raised up leaders for his people. If you haven't picked up yet, this is a new exodus. Okay, this is known as the second exodus. It's similar to what God did through Moses in the book of Exodus. He is raising up leaders. He's getting his people out of slavery, and he's showing his glory in and through it all. The second exodus really does parallel the first one in a lot of ways. you got the building of the temple. you got the building of the city walls. you got the reinstitution of the law which made Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah collectively seem like a type of Moses, and we'll talk about that. The challenge of the local enemies, you got temptation and intermarrying non-Jews. We'll get to that later on in life in a week or two. These parallels must have seemed to the former exiles like they were giving a free start from God. And while we can see parallels, this second exodus is all about demonstrating God's power and God's glory and that he is a God who keeps his word. Even Ezra's ancestry tells us more about God and his power than it does about Ezra himself. Think this through with me. Do you ever worry about your marriage because your parents had a marriage that did not last? Are you worried that you're going to repeat the same mistakes and redo all the bad things your family did? Perhaps you feel that if you came from a family that had more influence or had gone to church more or had more education or more wealth, then you would be more useful to the Lord. And I got really great news for you, church. If you're in this line of thinking, you need to realize that you are made in the image of God. We are all image bearers of God. And while we are all image bearers, we are all sinners in need of a Savior. And while we were dead in our trespasses and our sins, Jesus went to the cross at Calvary. And he died for the sins of the world. And whoever calls upon his name shall be saved. All you have to do is believe in your heart and confess with your lips that Jesus Christ is Lord. Also, you have to understand, Scripture shows us time and time and time again that God chooses weak things 
so God can demonstrate his power and mercy by shaming the proud and the noble when the weak and foolish believe the gospel and testify to God's glory. Your heritage is about God, not you. Praise the Lord if you come from a line of godly people. I thank God I had parents who had me in church growing up. I thank God for a grandfather that I witnessed read his Bible more than I watched him watch TV. I celebrate God's mercy for that. But you have to make the decision if you're following Jesus or not. If you come from a Christian family, like a real Christian family, not like CEOs, Christmas, Easter only. Um, but I mean like real Christian family. I mean your parents went to church on a regular basis. They had you going to Sunday school. You went to all the VBSs. You went to summer camps. You did all the things, man. They were praying for you. They were reading scripture with you. Praise God. That doesn't make you a Christian. All right, and on the flip side, if you didn't grow up in a family that went to church at all, only time you saw the inside of a church is when you attended a funeral. Well, praise God for his mercy because you are here today or you are listening online. And having parents that didn't bring you up as Christian doesn't disqualify you from becoming a Christian. All right? You have to make the decision. You either surrender to the lordship of Jesus now or when you die, you are going to surrender to the lordship then. The difference is later doesn't get you a relationship with Jesus. Later is going to put you in hell. And we don't follow Jesus to avoid hell. We follow Jesus because he is better than life. There was this philosopher from the late 1900s. You might have heard of him. His name was Ice Cube. <laughs> and he said, nobody wants to die. Everybody wants to go to heaven. I get it. Hell's hot and forever's a long time. But I don't see one picture in scripture where a person surrendered to the lordship of Jesus and went back to living a life of sin and a life for themselves. And I have not seen one case of a person getting into heaven because of their parents' faith. Look, there are no grandchildren in heaven. Meaning you are either a son or you are a daughter of the great high priest or you're not. And I pray that you are. But you see the importance of Ezra's lineage as why it should be important to the people of Israel. But we see more clearly that it is our God and he is faithful. All right. Secondly, the return of Ezra demonstrates the power of God. Take a quick second and think about this fact. God has ordained every single one of your days before any of them came to pass. You can find that truth in Psalm 139.16 if you want to fact check me. Do you want contentment in who you are and how God has made you? Rest in that fact. We serve a powerful God. Ezra knew that his mission only succeeded because of God's power. He knew God would have to do all the heavy lifting for him to complete this task. Ezra knew 139.16, and I imagine he rested in that truth. God is in control. And how do I know that Ezra knew that? Because the Bible says he was skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given him. He knew Scripture. Tradition says that Ezra had the law of Moses memorized and could write it down perfectly from just memory. Not only did he know the contents of Scripture, he understood the contents of the Scriptures, and he used God's holy word when he had pressing, pressing issues in his life. God gave him the ability to learn, and Ezra used that ability to study Scripture. And every single one of y'all have the ability to learn. But do you take the time out of your day or week to read and study God's word. Maybe you're thinking, I don't have time. How much TV do you watch a week? 
How often are you on your phone? Your iPhone, if you have an iPhone, will tell you exactly how much you're on your phone each and every day. We all have time. We just have to make it a priority. Or maybe you're thinking, I can't memorize verses. Sure about that? I'm willing to go on a, out on a limb and say everyone in here knows the lyrics to a bunch of different songs. Songs they like. Songs they don't even like. Okay? Here's a test. I'm about to sing a lyric, and I want y'all to see if you can finish it. So this is going to require you to sing. All right, this is also going to demonstrate why Morgan refuses to give me a microphone. <laughs> All right? If you know the rest, sing it out loud. <clears throat> Just a small town girl. She took the midnight train going anywhere. Right? Y'all know that song. You may not even like that song. But you know it. And I'm willing to say that a bunch of you here can quote lines from movies. It may not even be movies that you like. It doesn't even have to be your favorite movie. Like, we know movie quotes. If you know the, the movie from the quote, say it out loud. May the force be with you. There you go. You had me at hello. Jerry Maguire. I'm going to do an accent for this one. My mom always said life was like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. Forrest Gump, one of the greatest movies ever made. You're killing me, Smalls. Sandlot, there we go. First service struggled with that one a bit. <laughs> Hasta la vista, baby. Terminator. Nobody puts baby in the corner. Dirty dancing. Toto, I've got a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. To infinity and beyond. Y'all might struggle with this one. Here's looking at you, kid. Casablanca. And for some reason, uh, the first service struggled with this quote, except for the Prosser girls in the back. After all, tomorrow is another day. Gone with the wind. You may have not seen all these movies. You may not even like all these movies. But at the very least, most of us in here know about ten of those movies, or about five of those quotes, right? Do you have five Bible verses stored up in your heart like that? Because we need to. And maybe you're still thinking, I really, really, really can't memorize Bible verses. I've tried. Here's the thing. If I was to offer you $100 for every Bible verse you can recite, and I gave you a month to do it, some of y'all would walk out of here multimillionaires, and then the next day y'all be looking like Mr. T with all the gold around your neck. Okay? Now, because, and that's, <laughs> amen, because there is a clear and tangible value to it. We, because you see that there's clear and tangible value to it, you would memorize a bunch of scripture. And here's the problem, though. Scripture actually says in Psalm 19 um, that it is finer than gold and sweeter than honey. That scripture is finer than gold and sweeter than honey. It already has tangible evidence as being the literal word of God. And here's the truth. We need to start prioritizing scripture because when your son or daughter or loved one comes to you and is looking to you for help, you need to have some scripture ready to go. When your daughter or granddaughter or a loved one comes over and some girl is crying because some maggoty, pimple-faced little boy just broke her heart are you, and they're feeling worthless and they're feeling defeated, are you just going to look at them and say, nobody puts baby in the corner? 
Or do you think it would be better to know Psalm 139 and remind them that they are a child of God and they are fearfully and wonderfully made? Start knowing scripture because I don't know if you've looked around lately, church, but this world is getting further and further away from the things of God. And if you don't know what the Bible says, you're going to fall prey to these lies. The big one going around right now is love is love and you are what you feel. First off, God is love. And secondly, God created man, God created woman, and God didn't make mistakes. All right. And if you are sitting there thinking, I don't know, Pastor, that sounds pretty binary. I got news for you. It is binary. I didn't make this up. It's in the book. I just read the book, tell you what's in it. Even so-called Christians are screwing this up. They're screwing this up, wishing them happy Pride Month. I see you and I love you. To quote the late great Pastor R.C. Sprawl, what's wrong with you people? They all say the greatest commandment was to love your neighbor. Actually, Scooter, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Then the second is to love your neighbor. And if I'm y'all's neighbor, and in case you didn't know, I am your neighbor, the most loving thing you can do for me is to tell me when I am out of line of what the scripture says about God. You know what isn't loving? affirming and supporting what God calls sin. Period. End of story. God, I'm mad. Start knowing scripture so you can know what the Bible actually says. Start with the one right there on the back of your bulletin if you don't know where to start. There's a quiz on it at the end of the service every week. We recite that verse. We recite what's ever on the back of the bulletin the next week at the end of every Sunday service. It's a self-assessment. You can see if you've memorized it or not. Let me also say, knowing Scripture doesn't make you a Christian either. Satan knows Scripture. That's not great company to be in. It's not about knowing Scripture. It's about knowing God and having a relationship with Him. You learn Scripture because you love the things of God. You learn Scripture because you want to be in relationship with Him. You want to hear His voice. And you want to store it up in your heart so you may not sin against Him. God isn't in heaven with everyone's name written down on a poster board, putting little star-shaped stickers next to your name for every Bible verse you memorize, and whoever has the most gets to go to heaven. You learn scripture because you want to know him. You want to be in relationship with him. It's like when you're dating someone or you're married to someone. The more time you spend with that person, the more you come to love them and the more you come to know about them. For example, my wife is 5'3" which is the national average height of women in the United States, because she told me that. If you are a woman and you are taller than 5'3", then your lineage can probably be, be traced back to Goliath, you giant. <laughs> I know her birthday is August 22nd, and she is turning none of your business years old today. Her favorite movie is still Magnolias. Her favorite band is Coldplay and Feetwood Mac. Favorite TV show is New Girl. She really, really likes sushi. She used to love to read, but since chemo, it gives her a headache, and she only does it when she has to do it for work. She has to have a minimum, a minimum of three, three pillows, one fan, one ceiling fan, rain sounds, and melatonin to sleep. And the last one I'm going to share is there is no such thing as too many throw pillows on the bed or the couch when you live with her. I point all this out because I didn't learn all this at once. It took time. 
It's the same thing with knowing scripture. Ezra didn't know it all at once. He grew. He learned. He was a scribe. In, in Jesus' day, scribes were primarily students and teachers of the law. A scribe in Ezra's time was a person who functioned as like a copier or a writer or a communicator. He was essentially the king's secretary. Okay, But Ezra also had expert knowledge of the law. And the Bible badly needed, or excuse me, and the people badly needed instruction in how to live according to the law of Moses. And being close to the king like Ezra was, he was able to ask for permission and for resources to make his way to Jerusalem to teach and instruct the Israelites. And kings are desert, he's granted him permission to go. But why? It's not like Ezra's genealogy would have impressed him. Ezra knowing scripture wouldn't have done anything for him. Ezra's work ethic would not have mattered to the king. The king could have said no, but the hand of the Lord of God was on him. That phrase is found six times in Ezra and twice in Nehemiah. If you're a highlighter or underliner of your Bible, I would underline or highlight that phrase every time you see it. It wasn't Ezra that made this possible. It wasn't Ezra that put the wheels in motion. It was the divine hand of our Lord. It happened because he willed it to happen. Because God was demonstrating his power through this event. And we have seen that God is faithful. We've seen how God has demonstrated his power by orchestrating this new wave of the second exodus. And the third and final truth, this one doesn't really focus, or this one actually does focus on Ezra. The character of Ezra reveals his heart for the Lord. In verse 10 it says, For Ezra had his heart set to study the law of the Lord, and to study it, and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. Studying the Bible, doing what the Bible says, teaching the Bible to others. That is what Ezra was about. He studied scripture. He lived out his life that revealed he knew scripture. And he taught others about scripture so that they could do the same. Ezra is a direct descendant of Aaron, meaning he was a priest. He should be at the temple. But at the beginning of these verses, he is still in exile. He was still serving Babylon, which was the evil empire in their eyes, as a scribe, the empire that put his people into slavery. And at this point in their history, what did the Israelites need more than anything? If you were to ask them, they would note that, hey, we're in slavery. Now we're exiles. What we need more than anything is to be free from our captives. We need to have the lands established. We need an army. We need walls. We need a strong and powerful military. We need a great leader, someone from the line of David. But Ezra thought differently. Ezra thought what was most needed was to know the Bible, to do the Bible, and teach the Bible. Ezra believed the best way to pursue the kingdom was to set his heart on Scripture, to know Scripture, do Scripture, and teach Scripture. Notice he calls the law two different things. In verse 6, he calls Scripture the law of Moses. And in verse 10, he calls it the law of the Lord. What Ezra is saying is God inspired Moses to write what God wanted to give Israel through Moses. In verse 6, it says, He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. It's a really profound statement if you stop and think about it. And it's really profound because it's about the nature of Scripture. And it also makes it crystal clear why Ezra worked so very hard to know it. God gave himself, or excuse me, Ezra gave himself to the Scriptures because he believed that God gave it to Moses and that God authorized Moses as a unique prophet, according to Numbers 12, and through um, God, he gave the scriptures to Moses. 
And he is going to teach that to others, just as Moses gave the law to the people when he was around. God raised up Ezra as a new type of Moses to bring a revival of understanding of the word of God at this second exodus. Ezra is a new type of Moses. And if you haven't been paying attention, this is really where you probably should. Ezra's not pointing back to Moses. Ezra's pointing forward to Jesus because Jesus is the greater Moses. If you were to go through the gospel of Matthew, you would see parallel after parallel after parallel that demonstrates that Jesus is the greater Moses. Jesus is like Moses in his infancy. They both end up in Egypt. Before Christ gave his sermon on the mount, the Bible tells us he went up on the mountain. God called Moses up on the mountain. Same phrase used. Jesus fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. Moses did exactly the same in Exodus 34. In the book of Matthew, the first miracle Jesus performs is the cleansing of the leper in chapter 8. And when he cleansed the leper, the Bible says that Jesus stretched out his hand. There are only three instances of leprosy in the Old Testament. Two of them involve Moses. The first one's in Exodus 4 when God gave Moses leprosy on his hand, puts his hand in the cloak, removes it, leprosy's gone. The other one uh, is when God gave Aaron's wife, uh, Miriam, leprosy. So the people in this time period, or in Jesus' time period, would have recognized these parallels. But that's not all. In the book of Exodus, uh, ten times Moses stretched out his hand. Okay? Same wording. And how about miracles? Let's go through the miracles real quick. How about miracles at the sea? Moses walked through it. Jesus walked over it. How about feeding their people? Moses, um, through God, manna and quail. Jesus fed the 5,000 with essentially what is equivalent to a first century lunchable, a couple of fish and some bread. They both were transfigured. Moses, because he was in the presence of God, and Jesus transfigured because he is God. Exodus and Matthew both said their faces were shining like the sun. There are a lot of things I could uh, highlight as well. But for the sake of time, I'm going to highlight one more. Moses led his people through a physical exodus. They were released from slavery in Egypt. But the Israelites didn't stay free forever. God let them go back into slavery for their disobedience. But this time in Babylon, and that is why we have men like Zerubbabel, we have men like Ezra, and we have men like Ezariah as new types of Moses in a second exodus. And then Rome takes over, and the Jews were expecting another physical exodus from the coming Messiah, from the line of David. But that's not what happens, is it? Just like the exiles in Babylon, when they thought what they needed was to be freed, they thought they needed to have their lands reestablished. They needed a big and powerful army. They needed walls. They needed strong military leaders. Just like those exiles, the Jews in Jesus' time thought wrong as well. Jesus, just like Ezra, knew what the Jews really needed. He needed to be the word, or he needs to become the word becomes flesh. Right? He needs to dwell among them. Jesus needs to live a perfect life to die a sinner's death on a cross for the sins of the world. And for those that believe that what Jesus did on the cross accounted for them, they are no longer their sin and shame. They are no longer slaves to sin, but they are clothed in the righteousness of God. And you get to be in a relationship with him. And you get to have life everlasting with him. And if you've never had that relationship with God and you're ready to proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, I would encourage you to go to the Lord in prayer. And when we sing our final song, have the courage to walk up. 
And let's have a conversation. No one's going to judge you here. But I'm going to go ahead and have the worship team come on up and join me, please. You see, Jesus didn't come for a physical third exodus. He came for a spiritual exodus that was needed. The only spiritual exodus that will ever be needed. We are no longer slaves to sin. Jesus conquered sin and death. And for that to be a reality for anyone who does not have a relationship with him, all you have to do is confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord. Go ahead and stand with me, church. When Jesus stood on his, uh, stood on his nail-pierced feet at the cross in Calvary and said it was finished, that's exactly what he meant. The pretending is finished. Acting like you have it all figured out is finished. Pretending you have it all figured out. It's done. Give your troubles to the Lord. Your guilt, your shame, whatever it is, that is not who you are. If you're a follower of Christ, then praise the Lord, you are a child of God. And that is not who you are. You can rest in him. And because we can be called a child of God, we should long to know God's word. Let's start knowing what the Bible actually says so we can stand on it. You are no longer a slave to sin. Who the sun sets free is free indeed. Once and for all eternity. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, if there is anyone here who does not know you, Lord, let today be their day of salvation. Lord, who you have set free is free indeed, and we no longer have to live in sin and shame, and we can live in relationship with you. Lord, may we know what your word says and stand on that and not let society in this world dictate our beliefs because you are the same God from yesterday, today, and forever. Your word does not change. May we rest in that and know you more. 